0: This is a recording of Kor Rory, a maritime resources-based candidate for Nephi's Harbor, by George D. Potter. Published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. Read by Richard Fligger. Abstract. Kor Rory, which forms the mouth of Wadi, or valley, Darbat, is the largest inlet along the Dophar coast of southern Arabia. The Kor was excavated into a harbor by the erosive action of the river, that flows through Wali Darbut. In ancient times, Korori was the only harbor in the Dofar region that could accommodate large sailing ships. The first colonizers of Korori, who arrived around the 9th century BC, must have realized that this particular Kor, because of its morphology, was an ideal natural port for trading their frankincense with other seafaring nations. Because Korori has long been considered an important candidate for bountiful, and offers the advantage of not only the rich vegetation in Wadi Darbot and good sources of flowing water, it is also a safe harbor where a ship could be built. Indeed, the harbor would later become a busy port noted for building ships and much trade. This article provides updates since the original publications about Korori that are documenting its advantages and exploring the possibility that essential raw materials for shipbuilding and shipwright expertise might have already existed at Korori, in Nephi's day, in 2003, Richard Wellington and I put forward the idea in our book Lehi in the Wilderness that the ancient frankincense harbor of Korori, kor meaning inlet, in Oman, is the probable place where Nephi built his ship. At the time, we both lived in Saudi Arabia, and our research on Nephi's harbor constituted the last phase in our five-year effort to locate qualified candidates for sites described in the book of 1st Nephi. We were the first to propose that Wadi Ta'ib al Izm is a candidate for the Valley of Lemuel, that Wadi Sharma is a candidate for Shazer, that the villages along the Frankincense Trail between Wadi Ula to Medina are candidates for the fertile parts, and that Korori is a candidate for Nephi's harbor. Since that time, I have continued my research on Korori and now wish to share further information. The central event of the Old World Bountiful in the Book of Mormon is the building of Nephi's ship. As I search for the locations mentioned in the Book of Mormon, I appreciate that we will probably never know exactly where Nephi built his ship unless the Lord reveals it. However, we are directed to seek learning even by study and also by faith, as it says in D&C 109.14. So I feel it is not amiss to use what scholarship is available to us to attempt to show that what Nephi described in the first book of the Book of Mormon was in keeping with what one would probably have found at Korori at the turn of the 6th century BC. Two other candidates have been proposed for Nephi's harbor, namely Kor Carfoot by Warren Aston, and Wadi Mugsa'il by W. Revel Phillips. This paper approaches the subject of the location of Nephi's harbor in five parts. Part 1. What is reasonable to discern about the nature of Nephi's ship? Part 2. What were the geological features Nephi needed to build, outfit, and successfully launch his ship? Part 3. Where is Korori, and what are the attributes of the land of Bountiful? Part 4. Could Korori have had the maritime resources Nephi would require to build and sail a ship? Part 5. What are some additional speculations about Korori? Part 1. What can we discern about Nephi's ship? Well, Nephi provided no definitive description of his ship. Nevertheless, from the text of the Book of Mormon, we can conjecture the type of his ship and why it was different from other ships of its day. First, the ship appears to have had a hull with a covered deck. Nephi wrote, We did go down into the ship with all our loadings and our seeds." and whatsoever thing we had brought with us. First Nephi 18.6 They did not go down to the ship, but into the ship with their provisions. The implication appears to be that the ship had a sizable storage hull. Later, Nephi notes that there was room for dancing, suggesting a covered deck. Nephi guided and sailed his ship, an implication that it was a sailing ship with a rudder, as implied by First Nephi 18.13 and verse point two. From this limited information, it, it appears that Nephi's ship, with the exception of an added deck, was rather conventional for the period. It must have been a large vessel, capable of supporting an extended family of several dozen members on a prolonged transoceanic journey. Nephi's vessel needed to carry food and water for a sustained voyage, bedding, a cooking box and cooking items, seeds for planting in the promised land tools for sowing and harvesting plants, several sets of sails, bulky ancient tents, as noted in First Nephi 18.23, materials for repairing the ship, at least one stone anchor, the brass plates, and at least one sword, and probably more weapons. The ship had to be strong enough to withstand the powerful forces of pounding seas, including at least one great and terrible tempest, as mentioned in First Nephi 18.13. In combination, these clues provide a possible model for Nephi's ship, as shown in the figure included. Navy hull expert Frank Linehan, who has built and commissioned ships, calculates that Nephi's ship had an approximate length of 120 feet and a width of 30 feet. Of course, it can be argued that Nephi's party was smaller. Maritime archaeologist Tim Severin built and sailed a replica of a medieval Omani ship His crew had a crew of 20 people and required a length of 80 feet. Warren Aston has suggested that Nephi's ship was possibly a large raft. Substituting Nephi's great achievement of building an ocean-going sailing ship of exceeding fine workmanship, as noted in 1 Nephi 18.4, with that of roping together logs to form a raft, implies a dangerous supposition that Joseph Smith made errors in his translation of the Book of Mormon. The prophet repeatedly translated the word describing Nephi's vessel as a ship. The prophet certainly knew the difference between a ship and a raft. Sailing ships are maneuverable. They have keels. They have rudders, adjustable riggings, and narrow hulls that allow the ships to be sailed in a specific direction. A raft does not have the same capabilities. A brief reminder of the fate of Thor Heyerdahl's raft is enlightening, since it highlights the crew's inability to steer the raft. The journey commenced with the Kon Tiki having to be towed by a tug into the Humboldt current, which Heyerdahl knew would drift the raft directly into the path of the islands of eastern Polynesia. When his crew finally spotted an island after 101 days at sea, they tried to steer the raft to the island, but could not land because the current pushed the raft farther out to sea. When they approached the second island, the crew could not steer the raft safely. The craft smashed into a reef at Raoria in the Tuamotu Islands on August 7, 1947, and was destroyed. Nephi made it clear that he built a ship that he could steer, as it says in First 1 Nephi 18.13, guide and sail, 1 Nephi 18.22, and he also recorded that his ship survived a four-day great and terrible tempest. First Nephi 18.13 Yet it was only after the third day in the terrible storm that Laman and Lemuel became afraid. It is hard to imagine how the family, resting low in the water on a raft and exposed to the waves and winds of the terrible storm, would not have survived more than a few hours. Avoiding Antarctic gales and hurricanes was the reason Thor Heyerdahl intentionally launched the Kon-Tiki raft during the calm period of the year. Indeed, steering the craft was a major problem faced by Heyerdahl and his crew. It is unimaginable to sailing experts that a large family aboard a raft could have navigated, let alone survived, a crossing of the Pacific Ocean, 15,000 nautical miles, or a passage around Cape Good Hope. I will continue my discussion by assuming that Nephi's ship was a sailing vessel somewhere between 80 and 120 feet long, with a hull weighing in excess of 100 tons. Phillips writes, quote, During my last time at Sur, or Oman, workers were building a large, beautiful dhow for His Majesty the Sultan of Oman. I, and those with me, calculated that Nephi's ship must have been about the same size. I stood under the large hull in awe and amazement, and with new respect and understanding for the monumental task which Nephi would undertake, unquote. Such a ship would have required a harbor with specific features for building it, launching it, and maneuvering it safely into the Indian Ocean. Severin wrote about his replica ship, quote, it required a place to build her, a port to fit
1: her out, and a large crew to sail her, unquote. Part 2. Nephi needed specific geological features to build, outfit, and successfully
0: launch a ship. There were two primary geological features that Nephi needed in order to be successful in his shipbuilding and launching efforts. These features are addressed in the following two sections. A protected harbor with waves. What does Nephi tell us about the party's departure from Bountiful. He wrote that the family, quote, went down into the ship with all their loading and seeds and whatsoever thing we had brought with us, Verse Nephi 18.6. The most likely meaning of this verse is that they entered a moored ship via a gangplank, i.e. they were in a harbor and Nephi or his family members stored their provisions, personal items and bedding below deck. In other words, they were in a ship with a decking and not a ship at anchor beyond the surf line. After the family went down into the vessel, they did, quote, put forth into the sea, unquote. First 18.8. They could only do this if they were already moored in the water, or else they would have had to push the ship into the sea, in which case they would climb up into the ship. The fact that they put forth into the sea implies considerable control of the ship and tells us that the water they were in was not yet the sea. In other words, they were in a harbor. This implies a harbor as a necessary element to Nephi's narrative and an essential feature of bountiful. When completed and fully laden with supplies rigging tons of ballast, water, and at least one anchor, Nephi's ship could have weighed more than 100 tons. As such, they could only have been built on a cradle or a wooden platform above the tide line and then lowered into the calm water using gravity. In an age void of cranes and even pulleys, it is implausible to consider other means to launch a heavy vessel. What is required for the construction of a large ship is a sizable flat area of ground adjacent to deep water and protected from strong winds, high tides, and breaking surf. Nephi's narrative suggests an order departure from Bountiful on a completed ship already in the water, and seaworthy, as it states in First Nephi 18, verses 5-8. through 8. This would be consistent with Nephi having used the age-old practice of building a ship above the waters of a protected harbor and launching it from a dry dock using ways or ramps. Resting the hull in the safe water would provide the crew the essential time to allow the plank timbers to expand to seal the hull. The Hebrew word is tzaref, and then caulk any remaining leaks. You would check Ezekiel 27.9 for this process. This was the construction method used by both the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Once the hull was verified as being watertight, the deck and riggings could be added, the ship then loaded with ballast and put to sea for sea trials prior to embarkation. All these maritime fundamentals required a protected shipbuilding yard Above the calm waters of a harbor. This has been the case throughout history, even until today. One can travel from San Diego to Anchorage, Alaska, and not find a single shipyard on an exposed inlet or beach. In antiquity, Korori was the harbor of the famous frankincense trade. Ships from throughout the ancient world set anchor in her waters. Today, Korori is a large waterway extending over 1.5 miles inland. The core or Inlet has several natural places where large ships could moor, making it the likely reason that Korori and Takwa, the settlement two miles to the west, were in ancient times called Merbats, the moorings. Said al mashori, the Omani supervisor of excavations at Corrori showed us eight clearly defined remains of ancient shipyard ways ramps, from which ships were launched into the calm waters of Korori. The ramps themselves are located just south of the Sumhurum fortress, and include moorings where ships were finished and loaded. Even if these ramps were not available in his day, Nephi could have prepared his own building site, and dug his own ramp. Excavations adjacent to the ways have uncovered a complete wharf And bollards are wooden posts used to tie up the boats. Now again, Linehan estimates that Nephi's ship was at least 100 feet long and further noting that the draft, the depth of water that a ship reaches when loaded of Nephi's ship would equal one fifteenth the length of the waterline. These are the basic rules which from antiquity to today still hold true and are used by modern day naval architects. In 1995, Jana Owen of UCLA who made a study of inlets of southern Oman as part of the Trans-Arabia expedition, assured us that the only natural harbor that could accommodate large sailing ships was Korori. It is reasonable to assume that Nephi's ship would have taken several years to construct, thus requiring a sheltered place to protect the work in progress from the annual monsoon storms. The cliffs that run the entire length of both sides of the Korori provide a sheltered shipyard. Although today there is no inlet at Khor Carfoot, Aston has presented an illustration showing what a harbor might have looked like in Lehi's time. There is no archaeology or historical record to support his idea, however. Further, the illustration Aston offers presents a small inlet with no protection from tidal surges and winds of the monsoons and no breakwater to allow safe access through breaking surf to the open sea
1: the same eliminations would have been true for Wadi Mugsayu. Safe access to the Indian Ocean. Bountiful required a harbor with calm
0: waters in order for the family to enter the ship while moored, and then quote, set forth to sea, unquote, as Nephi explains. Furthermore, it would have been impossible for Nephi's ship and crew to sail anywhere without first conducting sea trials to test and adjust the ship and to allow the crew significant practice sailing. Shipbuilders know that any sailing vessel requires sea trials to trim the sails, to set the correct amount and position of the ballast, to balance the hull, and to train the crew. These necessary tasks would have required Nephi's ship to have exited and re-entered its mother port many times without wrecking in the high surf. And rocky cliffs common to the Omani coast. What is required in rough seas, like Oman's Indian Ocean shoreline, is a formable breakwater. Today, a sandbar closes off Korori. However, the port is known to have been open anciently, the sandbar forming only circa AD 1646 to 1690. Guarding both sides of the entry to Korori are Great Granite Cliffs. The cliffs themselves reach a height of 100 feet and project out into the deep water a length of 400 to 450 meters, thus providing a natural breakwater for a safe passage to the sea far beyond the breaking surf zone. Phillips describes this remarkable passage into the deep water. Quote, At Corrori, two elongated monoliths of rock flank the entrance to the core and defy an obvious geological explanation. Unquote. Building a ship strong enough to carry Lehi's family to the new world was the primary reason the Lord directed Lehi to Bountiful. This premise makes the natural harbor at Korori a logical candidate for Nephi's harbor. The long, wide, and deep harbor would have provided Nephi a protected building site, calm waters for launching, mooring sites for outfitting and loading the ship, still waters for practice sailing her, and safe access to
1: the open seas through a remarkable breakwater. Part 3. Korori and the Attributes of the Land of Bountiful
0: The natural harbor of Korori forms the mouth of the amazing wadi or valley of Darbat. Nephi's harbor was located in the land his family called Bountiful, so named for its much fruit and wild honey, as described in First Nephi 17.5. Bountiful also featured a shoreline a mountain where Nephi received instruction from the Lord as he outlines in 1 Nephi 17:7 7, a deposit of war in 1711 flint to start a fire also in 1711 wild game in 1 Nephi 18:6 and a place where Nephi could have been thrown into the depths of the sea
1: by his brothers in 1 Nephi 17:43 much fruit and wild honey While it is possible that
0: Nephi referred to wild fruits, the young prophet was from the land of Jerusalem, a culture renowned for its orchards, its vineyards, and its appreciation for fruit. Just read Proverbs 8.19. In describing Bountiful, Nephi distinguished between honey and wild honey, but only fruit, not wild fruit. It is reasonable, then, that Nephi referred to cultivated crops and not the wild vegetation that grows throughout the monsoomal region of Dothar. Near the Bronze Age settlements at Korori are found Iron Age remains of irrigated farms. Zarin's notes, quote, at Korori we found traces of long walls, many at right angles, placed in the context of diverting water from either springs or wadis, Nevertheless, we can only speculate on what Lehi would have found at Korori around 587 B.C., That said, excavations continue at Korori, and archaeologists have so far confirmed that as far back as at least the 3rd century BC, the harbor had traces of irrigation works in alluvial deposits and stone alignments that bordered and protected the arable lands and herding practices. All this archaeological evidence is fully in line with the paleobotanical and archaeozoological results, which point to the population at Sum Hadrami ruins at Korori, circa three hundred BC as having a rich and varied availability of food. Unquote. Of course, it could be argued that Nephi's reference that quote all these things were prepared at the Lord that we might not perish, as he says in first Nephi seventeen five, suggests that the fruit Nephi saw was not cultivated by the locals. Warren Aston has used this argument to propose Kor Carfoot as a possible candidate for bountiful. The quote uncultivated fruit near the ocean as Nephi indicates is the prime factor for giving rise to the descriptive name bountiful, unquote, as he says. While this might have been the case, uncultivated fruit cannot constitute a prime or a specific locator for bountiful in the Dhofar region of Oman. If uncultivated vegetation is what Nephi meant by much fruit, this attribute for bountiful would apply to the entire monsoonal zone in Dhofar and not exclusively to either Kor Karfoot or Korori. Furthermore, the wild vegetation in Carfoot grows in a very small area and is minuscule when compared to the amount and the variety of native vegetation growing at Wadi Darbat, the valley in which Korori is located. The beautiful Wadi Darbat is an Omani national park with impressive waterfalls, five freshwater lakes, a year-round river, and perhaps the most abundant wild fruit varieties found anywhere in Oman. Wadi Darbat is known locally as the, quote, Valley of the Big Trees. Professor Samir Hanna of Sultan Qaboos University describes this valley, quote, Majestic views of lakes, waterfalls, and wildlife, all of this coupled with the surrounding vegetation and the tranquility of the place, provides a vision of paradise, unquote. To this day, wild honey is still collected in Wadi Darbat. By foot, or by camels, Access to Wadi Darbat's lakes above the tall waterfalls from Korori would have been easy. The author has observed camels and their herders ascending from the harbor to the lakes while using both the modern road and beaten camel paths. Today, the harbor area of Wadi Darbat, in other words Korori, appears barren of significant vegetation. However, that was not the case in antiquity. Within living memory, Korori was heavily forested, and the botanical mission from Florence states that overgrazing has resulted in the harbor's current state. An archaeologist concludes that around 300 BC, the harbor of Korori was, quote, fairly rich in cultivation, unquote. Either blessed with cultivated or wild fruits, Korori and the
1: Wadi Darbat would have been a land of much fruit even a land described as a paradise. Wild game. As Professor Hannon notes, Wadi Darbat is known
0: for its wildlife. In the mountains surrounding the Wadi are found the Arabian leopard, the mountain gazelle, Blanford's ox, the hyrax, the hyena, and the Nubian goat.
1: An ancient cave art in Wadi Darbat portrays large wild animals of various sorts. A mountain or and flint. As for a nearby mountain at Korori, there are numerous choices.
0: To the immediate west of Korori is Jabal Taka, just two and a half miles from the natural harbor and its ancient ramps. Since antiquity, the mountain on the east of Korori has been called the Salat. Salat. The Al Salat, traditionally called the Mountain of Prayer, is also the mountain where William Revel Phillips of Brigham University found ore and where a Neolithic flint quarry is located below its slopes, and just four miles east of Korori. It is interesting to speculate the reason why the Lord requested Nephi to go up to the mountain, as is recorded in First 1 Nephi 17.7, instead of just showing him how to build a ship where he was sleeping. Might the Lord have known that Nephi would ask him where to find ore to make tools, as noted in First 1 Nephi 17.9, and that the answer had already been provided? the very mountain he was praying on? Aston has suggested that a distinguished mountain at Bountiful was located nearby the sea. Clearly, this attribute would have existed at Korori, Korkarfut, Wadi Mugasail, and all the other inlets along the Salala coastal plain. The Book of Mormon gives us no details about the mountain on which Nephi prayed, only that he went there often. We can only conjecture where the mountain was located in reference to where the family camped. How tall was it? How close was it to the seashore? Or how long did it take Nephi to reach it on camel or by foot? The entire Dofar seashore is bordered by mountain ranges within easy walking distances
1: from the beach. A place to throw Nephi into the depths of the sea. The cliffs that form the breakwater at Korori
0: are 100 feet tall. The cliffs reach over 400 meters into the depths of the Indian Ocean. Since it is known that people were living atop these cliffs anciently, and possibly in Lehi's time, perhaps the family was camped among them, and the argument between Nephi and his brothers took place near the edge of the cliffs. If Laman and Lemuel had successfully thrown Nephi from these towering cliffs into the deep waters of the Indian Ocean, Nephi's ship would never have sailed. Combining the above attributes that would have marked Korori in 600 B.C., and all within a short six-mile walking radius, the natural harbor makes Wadi Darbat and its natural harbor of Korori a formidable candidate for the land of Bountiful.
1: In his book Lehi and Soraya in Arabia, Aston proposes 12 criteria for the land of Bountiful. With its natural harbor
0: at Korori, Wadi Darbat would have met all of Aston's criteria, except for the
1: criterion questioned herein that Bountiful was a place with little or no population. Part four. Could Kororori have had the maritime resources Nephi required to build and sail a ship?
0: While still camped in the Valley of Lemuel, Nephi received the revelation that he would be given a promised land across the many waters. Nephi must have been quite young when he understood that he needed to build a great ship capable of taking a large family across the many waters. Nephi must have realized that he needed to learn dozens of shipwright and seamanship skills as well as acquire a long list of raw materials for his ship's construction. Due to the fame of the frankincense trade, his father likely knew that Korori was one of the few places in the ancient world that possessed these vital resources. While in the valley, Nephi being young and unexperienced, the challenge must have seemed overwhelming. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, quote, the first positive commandment of the Bible, according to rabbinic interpretation, is concerning the propagation of the human species. It is thus considered the duty of every Israelite to marry as early in life as possible. Eighteen years is the age set by the rabbis, and anyone remaining unmarried after his twentieth year is said to be cursed by God himself. Some urge that children should marry as soon as they reach the age of puberty, in other words, the fourteenth year. A man who without any reason, refused to marry after he had passed his twentieth year, was frequently compelled to do so by the court. Unquote. If Nephi had three unmarried older brothers, and presumably one or more older sisters, how old was he when he knew he needed to build a large and stout ship? He must have been in his early teens. At that age, what could Nephi have known about the complicated multi-skills he needed to master to construct an ocean-going ship? or for that matter, the other skills that would eventually need to be mastered in order to build swords like Laban's, or to construct an ore smelter, to build a temple like Solomon's, and to hammer ore into gold plates. It should be remembered that Nephi came from an elite family. He was highly educated for his time, knowing how to read and write in more than one language. His father was wealthy, having inherited lands and possessing gold and silver and precious things, as noted in Second Nephi 2 Nephi 2.4. One could suggest that Nephi could have been the son of a metal artisan, but that seems unlikely. Since Lehi was wealthy, Nephi was a master writer in more than one language. It's estimated that in ancient Israel only 3% of Jews were even literate. In this context, it is doubtful that young Nephi knew any of the manual skills of the servant or a member of the craftsman class. Who was there to teach him these multiple skills? Perhaps Finding a place where young Nephi could learn from master shipwrights and experienced seamen was the very reason that the Lord led Nephi to Bountiful. Even if Nephi had access to the best shipbuilders during his time, he still needed guidance from the Lord on how to make his ship strong enough to reach the new world. It is doubtful that any Omani ship in that day could have reached the promised land. The Lord counseled Nephi, quote, Thou shalt construct a ship after the manner which I shall show thee, that I may carry thy people across these waters, Unquote. First Nephi 17:8. So, how could his ship have been stronger and otherwise different from how other ships were constructed in 600 B.C.? U.S. Navy hull expert Frank Linehan believes that since the earliest known Omani ships were sewn together using coconut rope, They did not have the structure strength to reach the Americas. In our book, The Voyages of the Book of Mormon, Linehand proposes several improvements the Lord would have made to the ships of that day to make Nephi's ships strong enough to survive a transoceanic voyage, including reinforcing the hull with iron or wooden pegs. Even with divine guidance, there remain many questions relating to Nephi's account in the Book of Mormon. Where did Nephi find the raw materials necessary to build a large and stout ship? How could a young man with no shipwright skills construct a vessel of, quote, exceedingly fine workmanship, unquote, as said in First Nephi 18.4? Moreover, who taught Nephi and his crew the multitude of skills required to navigate and safely sail a large vessel? Now, of course, one could simply dismiss these questions by resorting to a mythological explanation. That is. An all-powerful God provided a long list of building materials for the young man and a host of angels to mentor him. However, Nephi only wrote that the Lord, quote, showed him great things unquote, and that he, Nephi, did the work. 1 Nephi 18, verses 1 through 3. This latter explanation seems to be the natural manner in which the Lord develops his disciples. My proposition is that even though the Lord inspired Nephi on how to build a ship, Nephi still had to actually acquire the raw materials for constructing the ship, find master shipwrights to mentor him on how to fabricate a ship, and experienced seamen to teach him and his crew how to sail a large ship. I concur with Brigham Young University's William Revels Phillips, who wrote in reference to Nephi constructing a ship, quote, I do not limit God's ability to do whatever he wishes by whatever means he wishes to do it, but if we choose the supernatural explanation, there is no meaning or purpose to all our logic and speculation, unquote. We're not at the point where Korori can decisively provide answers to all the questions critics of the Book of Mormon might raise about building and sailing Nephi's ship. And nevertheless, recent discoveries at Korori are providing rational answers to the doubters. Indeed, one of the strengths of Korori is that it is the more that is discovered about the
1: ancient harbor, the stronger it becomes as a scholarly defense for the Book of Mormon, as explained in the following section. Korori was populated before Nephi's time, and the harbor was probably an active trading port.
0: A distinguishing attribute of Korori, which is not the case for Kor Carfoot or Wadi Mugsa'il, is that it likely had to have been populated in Nephi's time. It is also possible that the inlet was an active trading port in that era. It would then follow that if Korori was a trading port in Nephi's time, the port could have provided Nephi the tangible and intangible resources he needed to construct. Based on Nephi's text, whether Bountiful was a wilderness or populated can be argued either way. On the one hand, before reaching Bountiful, Nephi continually referred to their journey quote, in the wilderness, unquote. Yet after reaching their camp on the seashore, Nephi ceased using the term wilderness in reference to Bountiful. A population at Nephi's harbor provides a reasonable explanation of how Nephi, through daily observation, knew his ship was different
1: from those built by their shipwrights. This is what he says in First Nephi 18.2 Further, it is highly probable
0: that wherever Lehi camped along the Indian Ocean, his family would have been in contact with the locals. On the other hand, Warren Aston promotes the paradigm that Nephi built his ship in an area that had little or no population, thus few or no maritime resources. However, the entire Dauphar region was populated well before Lehi's arrival including the areas surrounding Khor Karfut. Neolithic sites are found in Khor Karfut. Newton and Zerens describe the features of the Bronze Age. Quote, A small-scale Bronze Age settlement of the uplands, foothills, and coast of Dofar participated in this international trade, as evidenced by the recovery of Bronze Age tools and weapons, the domestication of plants and animals, trade in frankincense, and perhaps copal. unquote. Iron Age sites have been found at Raisut, just five miles from Khor Karfoot. An assessment of ancient man-made structures in Karfoot by archaeologist Paolo Costa indicates that the wadi was inhabited at some period. Believing that Lehi settled in an area void of people seems out of context with what is known about the history of the area. William Revel Phillips notes, quote, On this point, I differ sharply with Warren Aston." Lehi would have searched with difficulty to find a suitable site on the seashore that was completely unpopulated wherever he reached the sea Lehi had neighbors and if he tried to avoid them and was not curious about them they were certainly curious about him in a short time he must have become aware of a significant population center along the coast and of major commercial port at korori where a wide variety of supplies and amenities were probably available Surely some members of Lehi's extended family must have made friends among the local people and must have traded with them, learned from them, and given and received help in a wide variety of endeavors, unquote. The question begs to be asked, if members of Nephi's family were interacting with locals, why would he have chosen to construct his ship at a remote site when he could have simply moved to Korori
1: with its excellent harbor, vital maritime resources, abundant French water? and plentiful food sources. What do archaeologists tell us about Korori in Nephi's time?
0: Excavations at Ras al Jinz indicate that Oman had been involved in a sea trade with India from great antiquity, from 2500 to 900 B.C. Excavations at other sites in Oman indicate that Oman was involved in maritime trade with India, perhaps as far back as the mid-4th millennium B.C. Bronze Age findings of Carnelian at Korori indicate that the harbor was trading with northwest India centuries before Nephi's time. It is well documented that Korori was the harbor for the exportation of Omani frankincense, a trade that dates to prehistory. The fact that Oman was trading frankincense with Mesopotamia and India as early as the third millennium BC strongly suggests that the port of Korori was involved in some level of maritime trading well before Nephi set sail. Archaeologist Lynn S. Newton and Juras Zarens write, quote, Thus the maritime experience along the Indian Ocean appears to have been linked in a number of distinct cultural traditions from the Arabia Gulf, India, and the Indian Ocean, unquote. While noting that Korori, quote, has much to recommend it as a possible bountiful, unquote, at least in some respects, Aston has argued that Korori's role as a port had not begun in Ephi's day, and that the ruins at Sumharum date to no earlier than the beginning of the third century BC. However, the use of Korori as a port may have begun well before the invasion of the Hadramis in Korori circa three hundred BC, which may have been motivated by a desire to control and benefit from an already pre existing frankincense trade that centered in the harbor. The Hadrami settlement did not exist at Nephi's time. However, based on recent work, we now have evidence that it was settled well before 300 B.C. In a 2021 publication that discusses finds made in 2016, University of Pisa archaeologists suggest the Sum Huran was built in an area that was already heavily populated, with settlements possibly extending back to and beyond Lehi's day. Quote, the discovery at the end of 2016 of the H.A.S. 1 settlement on the Inquatet Promontory at Korori partly upset the previous hypotheses by bringing forth numerous new questions. Unlike what we imagined, Sum Haram was founded in an area that was already heavily populated, as shown by the presence of settlement H.A.S. 1. H.A.S. 1 was indeed inhabited since the 4th century B.C. to the 1st, 2nd century AD, but some older dates from an area used as a dump suggest that there was already a settlement context around the 8th century BC, unquote. Newton and Zarens conclude, quote, the colony in the Dofar region at Korori was constructed in stages, and the layout resembles a typical South Arabic period settlement. The site, built circa 300 BC, juts out over the lagoon and sits on top of earlier shell-midden iron age sites the site sits at a prime location the lagoon served as a harbor or protected port from the southwest monsoon both sides of the lagoon have promontories that not only provided natural lookout posts but also were distinctive landmarks on the coast for sailors unquote Zarens indicates that another iron age site located on the terrace immediately below the, Hadrami outpost. the data so far cannot confirm that the port was being used as a port in Lehi's day. But it was likely inhabited, and given its advantages as a port, and its later rise as a major port, the proposal that Korori functioned as a port with at least some maritime skills in Lehi's day seems plausible. While there is no way of knowing the exact place where Lehi might have camped at Korori, there are several Iron Age possibilities, including Kortakwa, Wadi Darbat, an earlier settlement on the site where Sumharum was also later built, or on Inquitat, the promontory on the east entrance to Korori. If camped atop Inquitat, it provided a possible site for where Nephi argued with his brothers who tried to throw him to his death in the depths of the sea. Artifacts found on the promontory indicate that Inquitat was continually inhabited from 800 BC to the Islamic period. Newton and Zerans conclude quote, it is likely that merchants from Shabwa, arriving long before the actual colony, Sumhoran circa 300 BC, was established, found contemporary inhabitants throughout the area, including those at Korori. Maritime archaeologists concur that Korori was probably an active trading port during the first millennium BC, perhaps even featuring moorings for loading and unloading the timber and other items Nephi would have needed. Jana Owen of UCLA, director of the Trans-Arabia Coastal Survey, concluded, quote, we know about the Hadrami invasion, but I believe that it, or Rory, would have been used as a port previous to that invasion. Again, around the settlement we have surveyed a good deal of Iron Age lithics. This is earlier than the work that is now being done by the Italians from Pisa. We also did a dive survey of the lagoon, where we found evidence of modification on the northeastern edge of the lagoon, and the size is clearly indicative of large ship docking. Unquote. Furthermore, there is tentative evidence that sailing ships were constructed at Corrori as far back as 1000 BC. The Office of the Advisor to His Majesty the Sultan for Cultural Affairs reported on Korori in 2008. There is a Bronze Age settlement indicated by round stone megalithic-style structures at the top end of the Al-Hamir al Sharqiya promontory on the eastern side of the mouth of Wadi Darbat, Korori. A surface survey of the settlement unearthed some flint tools and fragments of copper attributable to the late 3rd millennium BC. The emergence of this kind of settlement which marked a cultural shift in the region of Dauphar, coincides in time with the appearance in written Mesopotamian sources of an increasing use of ritual fumigation with aromatic substances, which could be interpreted as frankincense. It is therefore probable that these Bronze Age people at Korori were already exploiting and trading in the principal resource of the area, namely frankincense. Trade would have had to be by sea, probably by coastal navigation and by stages reaching Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley, unquote. The Omani Ministry of National Heritage and Culture states that dofar whose ancient harbor was Korori, quote, grew from obscure beginnings before 1000 BC. Its growth was the major stimulus to the reopening and expansion of Indian Ocean maritime routes,
1: unquote. Five Resources Nephi Needed to Build and Sail a Ship In order to build and sail a ship,
0: there are five elements to which Nephi needed access. Hardwoods, fabric, ore and metalworkers, shipwrights, and seamanship skills. The following sections examine the availability of these resources in the area.
1: Access to long, straight hardwoods. There is no evidence that shipbuilding timber ever grew in Oman.
0: Yet Nephi needed long, straight, hardwood to build a ship strong enough to survive an ocean crossing. Phillips notes in a preface that quote, timber appropriate for building a conventional ocean-going ship does not grow anywhere along the Omani coast, and probably did not do so in the past. Trees are very scarce in the Dhofar, and those of significant size tend to yield gnarly, punky wood. Unquote. Phillips could have added that the short and gnarly trees that do grow in Dofar are pervious softwoods, which when placed in water will become waterlogged and sink. The Omani Ministry of National Heritage and Culture notes, quote, teak and coconut wood were used exclusively for building holes. Teak had to be imported from India. Jeff Lindsay suggests, quote, it is reasonable to argue that if locals relied on imported wood for key ship's components, Nephi may also have needed to do so, unquote. For example, maritime archaeologist Tim Severin constructed in Oman a replica of Sinbad's sailing ship, which would have been smaller than Nephi's. He noted, quote, The problem was that the keel piece to my replica needed to be 52 feet long, 12 inches by 15 inches in cross section, and dead straight, unquote. Severin had to import from India all the timbers for the replica. The main spar, the timber that holds the mainsail, required a straight tree 81 feet long. The mast required another timber 65 feet long. Since such trees never grew in Oman, Nephi, like Severin, needed access to imported wood. Ample evidence witnesses to the contact between southern Oman and India and the Horn of Africa from as early as 1950 B.C., which time span could have allowed access to hardwoods from India, the source from which shipbuilders in the Arabian Peninsula and Mesopotamia historically obtained their hardwoods. Tom Vosmer, director of the traditional boats of the Oman project, noted of ancient shipbuilding in Oman, most, if not all, planking timber had to be imported, Teak, ventique, and mango, as did spar timber, unquote. Phillips adds, quote, if the ship were built at Korori or even at Salala, teak lumber from India was almost certainly available for purchase on the docks at Korori, unquote. Severin added, quote, the timber for building Omani ships is brought nearly 1,300 miles from the Malabar coast of India. It is a trade which goes as far back as the earliest records, because Oman lacks trees large enough to provide first class boat timber, unquote. However, would this timber imported from India have been available to Nephi Korori in the 6th century BC? Well, in the year 2000, the World Heritage Committee of the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, designated Korori as a World Heritage Site, noting that trade in frankincense was, quote, one of the most important trading activities of the ancient and medieval world, unquote. German maritime archaeologist Norbert Weissmann who specializes in Oman, writes of Korori, quote, certainly it was involved in the traffic to India in Greco-Roman times, but there was trade with white India much earlier, unquote. Nephi's description of working, quote, timbers of curious workmanship, unquote, hints that the timbers were probably pre-cut woods or workmanship from a foreign location. An example for pre-cut timbers being exported was Almung, as noted in 1 Kings 10.11, a hardwood used for building the temple. Almug was shipped from Ophir, but was believed to have originated in India. Almug appears in the plural form, which Bible scholars have taken to mean that the wood was delivered in planks. When it was written, the periplus of the Erythraean Sea noted that India was importing beams
1: and rafters to Oman. How could the timbers have been curious to Nephi if he had logged and cut the timber himself? Fabric for sails Nephi's ship was powered by sail,
0: as noted in first Nephi 18.22. Therefore, fabric for sails would have been another resource for the construction of Nephi's ship. Traditionally, the sails on Arab ships were woven from coconut or palm leaves or were made from cotton cloth. These materials stretch with time and need to be replaced within weeks. Nephi needed sails appropriate for strong stormy wind conditions, as well as larger sails for calm winds. Thus his ship needed several sets of sails requiring a considerable amount of fabric. Cotton would have been available at Korori either as a locally grown product or as an import from India. According to the periplus of the Erythrean Sea, written in the early Christian centuries, perhaps as late as the 4th century, Cloth was one of the products that the inhabitants of Dothar imported in return for their frankincense. An unlikely but possible material for sails could have been fabric woven from goat hair. Such sails would have been thick, heavy, and less capable of catching wind. Perhaps Nephi could have fabricated sails from the heavy goat hair tents the family brought from Jerusalem. Nautical archaeologist Tom Vosmer studies the possibility that third millennium B.C. sailors used sails fabricated from goat hair to propel reeded ships from Oman to India. However, his replica of a 5,000-year-old Omani ship with goat hair sails sank within hours
1: of launching. Iron Ore and Metalwork As noted earlier, researchers from Brigham Young University discovered iron
0: ore in Dofar their, quote, most exciting and significant discovery, only six miles east of Korori. Other recent findings have relevance to the Book of Mormon narrative. Bronze blades, a knife, and hooks were found in Nofar, dating to 4000 BC. Excavations by a team from the University of Pisa discovered at Korori iron axes, iron nails, an iron knife, an iron razor, well-crafted swords, and iron-smelting slag from four iron smelters and slag from one bronze smelter, dating from the first century B.C. According to the Omani Office of Cultural Affairs, quote, the excavations in Sumharum have produced a significant quantity of artifacts in metal, bronze, and iron. These are mostly utensils for everyday use, mainly in iron, nails, chisels, hooks, needles, razors, various blades, clips, Weights, locks, lamps, sickles, and mattocks, many of these bronze objects seem to have been cast with a lost wax technique and finished by hammering and engraving. The premises discovered in the residential area that were used by artisans for working metal, especially iron, the discovery of numerous small crucibles in glazed terracotta bearing races of bronze casting, as well as the great quantity of bronze and iron slags, all indicative that Suhurum produced most of the metallic objects found there, unquote. Furnaces for smelting iron and bronze objects were located around the Sumharam's market square. In all, the PZ archaeologists collected 50 kilos of melting slag, mostly from the iron production chain at Korori. In 2013, a large bronze plate with writing on it was also excavated in Korori. Although the plate dates to the Sumharam period, it hints that recording written text on metal plates was a technology that might have existed at Corrori even before that period. Vittoria Buffa notes, quote, The text with its allusion to bronze, object material, is evidence of metalworking in the port. The numerous furnaces excavated by IMTO are clear evidence of the various industrial activities of the inhabitants of the port. The tablet was certainly forged at Sum Harum, Molds for bronze inscriptions were found at Sumarim. Within the community, there were, therefore, specialized craftsmen capable of producing artifacts, not only of daily use, unquote. Phillips of Brigham Young University has suggested that Nephi's metallurgy, quote, may have been learned from the local smiths of Dothar, or from the Indian traders that passed through nearby trading ports. But what if the statement in First Nephi 17.9 about Nephi's seeking revelation on where to find ore so that he could make his own tools to build the ship. Doesn't this undermine the proposal that a vibrant community of shipbuilders was already present at Bountiful who could have provided the tools Nephi would need? Why would Nephi have had to find his own ore and forge his own tools? Metal tools would certainly have been in high demand by the shipbuilders, and the valuable ore deposits may have been guarded. It is reasonable to assume that Nephi's finances were limited and metal tools very expensive. If Nephi was shown by the Lord where to mine his own ore and learn from local smelters on how to forge his own tools, Nephi's remaining finances could have been used to
1: acquire the necessary imported hardwoods and sail fabric. Expert Shipwright Hugh Nibley suggests that Lehi, quote, and
0: his sons knew a good deal about caravan techniques is obvious, and yet we are explicitly told that they knew nothing at all about shipbuilding. Why should they? Shipbuilding was the jealously guarded monopoly of the coast people, unquote. Nibley explains, members of the family laughed contemptuously when Nephi proposed to build a ship, and might well have quoted the ancient proverb, do not show an Arab the sea, or to a Sidonian the desert, for their work is different, unquote. It is likely that from where Nephi arrived at Bountiful, his knowledge of shipbuilding was nil. John L. Sorensen concludes, quote, no hint can be found in the text that anyone in Lehi's party had any knowledge whatsoever of nautical matters. Unquote. Maritime expert Frank Linehan, who has built his own small ships, believes that to build a ship stout enough to reach the new world, Nephi needed access to the best shipwrights of his day. Unquote. While the Lord gave Nephi the instruction on how to build a ship, he did not give him the lifetime of experience that shipwrights need to perform their essential craft. Besides metalwork, there is a shortened list of some of the essential competencies Nephi needed to master to construct a ship. Number one, forming a hull by pre-shaping planks and knowing exactly where to place the ship's ribs so the hull could withstand the forces of the sea. Number two, woodworking, for example, tapering a mast, shaping perfectly fitted joints, or preventing leaps by craving planks to within one sixteenth of an inch in exactness. Number three, Rope warping and sewing timber, since ship needs miles of rope and attaching the ropes to the timbers needs the exact number of strings at the correct tension. Number four, bending the planks into exact shapes using steam boxes. Five, caulking the ship and knowing how to mix the caulking compounds to prevent leaks. Eight, oiling the ropes so they do not fail. Number seven, anti-fouling the ship by mixing a coating compound that can protect against shipworms. Number eight, outfitting the ship by knowing how and where to anchor the mast and how to install a complicated set of riggings and sails. So, who mentored Nephi in these essential competencies? As noted earlier, Korori was a major economic center in the ancient world, and maritime archaeologists believe that shipbuilding probably took place there hundreds of years prior to Lehi's arrival. Ancient shipyard ramps or ways can still be observed at Korori, attesting to the fact that shipwrights built and repaired ships there to support the ancient frankincense sea trade. Seamanship Skills Nephi needed a competent crew and the seamanship skills to train them. It takes years to learn and practice the skills needed to control a sailing ship at sea. Historian Maurizio Tossi writes of the ancient Arabian captains, quote, For the first navigators, it was like venturing into outer space, and only a body of accumulated experience ensured their survival at sea, unquote. The Periplus of the Erythrean Sea mentions that Korori was a safe haven for ships held up in the winter. Quote, The place goes by the name of Moshka, where ships from Cana, today Yemen, are customarily sent. Ships come from Diramiki, southern India and Berigaza, modern-day brooch in India, which cruise nearby and spend the winter there due to the lateness of the season. Unquote. Undoubtedly, the later Greek captains learned from the early Arabian sailors the advantage of mooring in the protected waters of Korori during the winter northeast monsoon. Perhaps during the winters at Korori, Nephi had access to idle captains who knew how to sail large ships across the ocean seas of the Indian Ocean, and other experienced seamen who could have instructed Nephi and assisted in training his crew. Nephi's ship had to have been manned by a crew with a basic knowledge of how to raise and taper the sails while adjusting the riggings, steering the ship, sailing with and against the wind, including how to quickly change the sails if a storm approached, and how to repair the ship. During all hours of the night and day, a ship the size of Nephi's would have required at least a three-man crew, two men aft at the tiller, and one man forward as a lookout. Another strength to the populated Korori paradigm is that the harbor was at the end of the only known trail to the Indian Ocean from the interior trade route. The famous incense trail would have provided Lehi an existing caravan trail for access to the Indian Ocean. The trade route turned eastward at what Book of Mormon scholars believed was Naha, as found in First Nephi 17 1 Nephi 17.1, but eventually turned south for a short distance to traverse the roughed shoreline mountains of Dofar. Camels are top-heavy. Whenever possible, caravans avoided mountains. And when impossible to avoid, level trails were cut through the mountains to allow camels to climb and descend steep slopes. Laden with heavy tents and provisions, Lehi's family would have required camels to haul their heavy loads and thus needed an established trail through the steep and highly vegetated mountains of Dofar the ancient frankincense caravan trail cut through the mountains of Tofar and descended to the harbor of Korori. Without a known trail from the interior to Koror Karfoot, Phillips made the following observation, quote, Wadi Saik today is a narrow canyon for most of its length and is clogged with huge boulders and unfriendly vegetation,
1: making it almost impossible to bring a caravan down the Wadi, unquote. Part 5. Additional speculations on Korori. In the
0: following sections, I offer a series of questions and possible answers to the questions relative to Korori. Was Korori actually named bountiful? Any proposed answer is necessarily speculative. Nevertheless, I believe that speculation is of sufficient interest to the reader and should be presented. I was introduced to Omani historian and author Ali al-Shahri by S. Kent Brown of Brigham Young University. Ali has written 11 books on the history and language of the Dofar region where Korori is located. His epigraphical research has been quoted by archaeologist Juris Zerens, the former director of the land of the Frankincense Museum in Salalah. Al-Shari has been a guest speaker at Brigham University. Ali Al-Shari's book, The Language of Ad contains the genealogy of his family, indicating that they are direct descendants of Ophir, the man whose name was given to the famous harbor that is mentioned in the Old Testament. The brown driver Briggs Hebrew and the English lexicon states that Ophir is the name of an Arabian tribe. Reverend Charles Forster B.D. of the Cathedral of Canterbury wrote that, quote, Ophir, like all his elder brethren, settled in Arabia, and that his chief seat lay in the mountains of Oman, unquote. It is also interesting to know that Ophir had a brook running through it as noted in Job 22:24 and that the only continually running river in southern Oman is found in Wadi Darbat Korori Of his ancestors Al-Shari writes quote, "Ophir in the Bible and the Torah is the name of one of Joktan's sons and his sons lived between Misha and Sephar which is thought to extend from Hadramaut to the east of Dhofar So, Ophir is the name of one of the three brothers who shared ancient Dofar between them. They were Uz, Ophir, and Jera. Korori is located in the Omani region of Dofar, While Al-Shari's written genealogy is based on the oral tradition of the tribal elders, during my visit to Korori in 2019, two representatives from LDS family search joined me to meet with Ali for the purpose of obtaining his permission to digitize his genealogy. If Ali al-Shari's genealogy can be verified as authentic, it will provide an important clue in our search for Nephi's harbor. An obvious qualification for Nephi's harbor is that it was located in a land that people refer to as fruitful or bountiful. While there continues to be debate as to the location of ancient Ophir, it is reasonable to hypothesize that Korori is a candidate for ancient Ophir. The LDS Bible Dictionary states of Ophir, quote, probably a port of southern Arabia, unquote. Strong's Bible Dictionary indicates that Ophir was, quote, a land or city in southern Arabia in Solomon's trade route where gold evidently was traded for goods, unquote. Ali al Shari grew up at Korori in its beautiful upper section of Wadi Darbat. Included in his book is a map that shows the tribal lands of the Ophir people. The tribes' lands of Ophir start at the harbor of Korori and run west for about 10 miles, commencing at the sea and reaching to the coastal mountains. Therefore, Al-Shari's genealogical record and tribal traditions provide tentative evidence that the ancient name for the natural harbor of Korori is Ophir. So, what does Ophir mean? According to Smith's Bible Dictionary from 1863, Ophir means abundance. The name definition is given in Jones's Dictionary of Old Testament Proper Names of 1990. If you place Bountiful in the Microsoft word thesaurus, you will find abundant as a synonym. Thus, an accurate translation of the name Ophir into English and a possible proper name for Korori is Bountiful. Potts' Bible Proper Names states that Ophir means a fruitful region. And we know Nephi named the land where he built his ship Bountiful because of the land's much fruit, and also wild honey, as is noted in First 1 Nephi 17.5. According to Ali, Wadi Darbat has some 400 flowering plants that make its wild honey highly prized. Discovering possible evidence that Korori was Ophir is significant for two reasons. First, it supports the assertion that the Kor or Inlet was one of the ancient world's trading ports and that it functioned as a harbor well before Nephi's time. Indeed, King Solomon sent his navy to Ophir to acquire gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks, all likely items that were traded for frankincense at Korori by civilizations bordering the Indian Ocean. During Pliny's time, Oman was still famous for trafficking in native gold. According to Misu Julian in his book Ophir is Dophar, during the Queen of Sheba's reign, Dofar had the biggest gold mine in Arabia. Second, If Korori is the precise location of the harbor of Ophir, we can use al-Shahri's tribal lands map to narrow the location of Ophir, namely, Bountiful, to an area of only a few square miles that are at and adjacent to Korori. The Sword Connection Nephi forged many quality swords that were comparable to Laban's high-quality weapon. As previously noted, Nephi was a young lad when he left the land of Jerusalem. His family was wealthy and he was highly educated for his time, reading and writing at a remarkable level and in more than one language. It is unlikely in his area that the young son of an elite family would have toiled in manual labor, let alone having been a master blacksmith before leaving Jerusalem. What are the skills young Nephi would have had to have mastered to make a sword of highest quality? What is certain as he could not have mastered such a complex competency while casually observing others forging swords. As one swordsmith told me, quote, Nephi had to have worked beside a master swordsmaker for months in order to make even a crude sword. For example, even before refining steel, Nephi would have had to have known the art of making charcoal without oxygen. William Revel Phillips of Brigham University writes, quote, Nephi struck stones together to make fire built a presumably simple pit furnace, and constructed a bellows of animal skins to blow air into the glowing mass of charcoal and ore. Nephi's melting furnace most certainly never reached the melting point of iron, or 1,535 degrees Celsius, or 2,795 degrees Fahrenheit. But it didn't need to. When air is introduced into a hot mixture of iron oxides and charcoal, carbon from the charcoal combines with oxygen from the air This gas filters upward through the charcoal ore mixture, removing oxygen from the iron oxides to form carbon dioxide, and tiny crystals of iron, freed of its oxygen, filter downward to accumulate at the base of the fire pit as a gray spongy mass called a bloom or sponge iron. This form of iron reduction, called the direct process, begins at about 1,200 degrees Celsius or 2,192 degrees Fahrenheit, which is possible in a simple charcoal furnace. Although the bloom is not molten, silicate impurities in the ore form a molten slag that floats to the top to shield the hot bloom from the oxygen and cooling effect of the air above. The white-hot bloom can be withdrawn from the furnace and hammered or forged to squeeze out the remaining slag and to weld or compress the iron crystals into a solid mass called wrought iron. Iron produced by this direct process is quite pure, on the order of 99.5%. It is softer and more malleable than good bronze and cannot be hardened by any amount of additional forging. Wrought iron is not suitable for tools or weapons, and added forging drives more slag from the iron, making it even more malleable. Long heating of the wrought iron in direct contact with glowing charcoal, however, causes carbon atoms to diffuse into the outer layers of the iron, creating a simple form of steel, martensite. This process is called carburizing, and repeated carburizing and forging produce an outer layer of steel that can be very hard and sharpened to a fine edge. The iron is said to be case-hardened, and repeated sharpening will remove the carburized steel. In antiquity, all swords were not created equal. Common soldiers fought with inferior weapons that might dent and bend, but kings wielded swords of special steel, each created by a skilled smith after days or months of hard, hot work at his forge, for example, Excalibur. The sword of Laban, said to be of, quote, most precious steel, as written in first Nephi four, nine, was perhaps one of these special swords. Nephi would have needed several years to construct his large ship. Steel refining and sword-making were active at Korori in the first millennium B.C. Knowing that his family would be voyaging to a promised land, and not knowing if they would face hostile inhabitants or wild animals there, Nephi must have sensed the need for weapons. Mentoring under master swordsmiths and practicing sword-making at Korori to building his ship seems a likely possibility. The smelters and swordsmiths of Korori present a possible explanation of how Nephi became a master swordsmith and an experienced refiner of metal. Summary As stated at the beginning of this article, unless the Lord reveals it, we will probably never know the exact location where Nephi built his ship. While the data so far cannot confirm that Korori was being used as a port in Lehi's day, it was likely inhabited, and given its advantages as a protective harbor, its later rise as a major port and the existence of maritime trade in the Indian Ocean prior to Lehi's time, the proposal that Korori functioned as a port with at least some maritime skills in Lehi's days seems reasonable. At present, Korori provides a pragmatic theory for how a young man with no maritime knowledge could, with divine guidance, construct and sail a large ship stout enough to reach the Americas. So important were the tangible and intangible resources that were possibly available at Korori that these scarce ancient assets provide a rational explanation for why the Lord led Lehi's family through the hellish desert of Arabia to reach a place where Nephi could learn how to construct, launch, and captain his ship. Even if it is later proven that these assets were not available to Nephi at Korori, Wadi Darbat's outstanding protected harbor Abundant vegetation, and amazing breakwater for safe passage to the Indian Ocean made Korori a favored candidate for a site where Nephi built and launched
1: his ship. Nevertheless, Korori is a feasible candidate for bountiful and warrants further research.
0: George D. Potter graduated with high honors from the University of California, San Diego, and two years later earned a master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley, And became a certified public accountant. He lived in Arabia for 27 years and during that time produced many films and books on his book of Mormon and biblical discoveries. His articles on the Valley of Lemuel in 1999 and Lehi's Trail in 2007 were published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. His books include Lehi in the Wilderness 2003, Nephi in the Promised Land 2009, the voyages of the book of Mormon in 2011, and Discovering the Amazing Jaredites in 2021. He is the editor of a monthly newsletter on Book of Mormon research. Highlights of his research are presented on his website, www.NephiProject.com. This has been a recording of Cor Rory, a maritime resources-based candidate for Nephi's harbor, by George D. Potter, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 51, 2022. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Latter-day Saint Scripture can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.